You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 86th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Facebook and Instagram. Today, I have a very special friend of mine as a guest, Barnes Boffy. Barnes has a world of experience to share with us today. He's a recovering alcoholic. He's taught at Dartmouth College, is senior faculty for the William Glasser International, worked in camping for 51 years, 24 of which he was a camp director for a boys camp with kids aged 8 to 15. He's a published author of Reinventing Yourself in 1993, My Gift in Return in 2000, and his most recent edition, a children's book, Climb on Simon, published just this year in 2021. I can attest to how brilliant Barnes is having read all three of his books, including purchasing a copy for each of my sets of grandchildren of Climb on Simon. Barnes also wrote the first musical adaptation of The Velveteen Rabbit in 1972. He's a counselor in private practice since 1977. Most recently, he's teaching courses for Osher, bettering our relationships with our adult children, navigating our lives in trying times. He has two adult children, ages 44 and 50. Welcome, my friend, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's nice to be here. I'd like to start, if you would allow me, by talking about your kid's book. Is there anything about Climb on Simon that makes it particularly relevant and important for kids today? Climb on Simon is about a boy who wakes up and just is in one of many mornings he wakes up and he never feels like he's quite enough. He feels like he's not good enough. He's not smart enough and goes through a series of adventures at camp where he finds that service to others is really the way to begin to feel like he is enough. And all the machinations and adventures that come in the middle of that. I think it's most important because there seems to be an epidemic these days of people who don't feel like they're enough. There's some standard that they're applying their lives to. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I thin enough? Am I sexy enough? Am I rich enough? Am I whatever? It almost always comes up, no, I'm not. I'm somehow inadequate. When you start off believing you're inadequate, that's the way you interpret everything that comes your way. What Simon says is, yeah, that you're enough. And he ends up waking up another morning and feeling like he is enough. and He doesn't have to do any all sorts of special things. But how do you get there? And I think the trick is, at least in this book, the trick is service to others. Yeah, I think service to others is so important. When you don't feel like enough and you're able to contribute to other people, it really does elevate that feeling of being able to be involved with people. And it feels like you are enough when you can help someone else. I used to talk about happiness. Happiness is a function of love and service. The analogy I used, I used to think I could just sort of drill for happiness. It's like you drill for gasoline. You don't drill for gasoline. You drill for oil and then you have to refine it. I think it's the same thing with being happy. You know, you have your experience, but then you add the love and the service to it. And that's what refines it into happiness. There's always some refining and transforming that needs to be done in the middle. What I liked about Climb on Simon, as someone, as a kid who went to summer camp, there was a lot of things that were recognizable about that book to me, right? So I think anyone who's had the experience of going to summer camp might really enjoy that book. And even if you haven't, right? Even if you'd like to have gone to summer camp, right? Yeah. I know you did something really fun for your 75th birthday. Would you be willing to share with our audience what that was? 
Yeah. Whenever I reach these major mileposts in my life, the overwhelming feeling I have is gratitude. I just think about the only reason I'm the person I am is partly because of the work I've done, but also because of all the people who supported me and loved me and trusted me. You know, there was an old quote that said, our lives are defined by people, those who love us and those who refuse to love us. After a lot of thinking, I thought, okay, 75 years. So I took $75 and gave $75 to 75 people and told them each to do something to make the world a better place. It's really an amazing feeling. A little costly, but that was okay too. I just said, when you've done it, just let me know what you've done. For some people, it was really straight ahead. For some people, they still haven't found the right moment or the right time. One guy planted a tree when his daughter was born, so the tree would be the same age she was all the rest of her life. Different people gave contributions to different organizations. It was just really wonderful. But the point was, they spent a lot of time thinking about how can I make the world a better place? And I got to facilitate that, which made my birthday be a celebration of momentous importance. That was nice. That's one way to really multiply the influence, right? Get others involved in it. Absolutely. I'm going to guess that's a question you ask yourself often. What can I do to make the world a better place? Yeah. It's funny because we were talking about this with somebody else in camp, trying to teach these young men. I was a men's boys camp, but especially the ages 16, 18, 15, when they come back as counselors, just to say to them, the best thing you can do in any situation, if you want to become a great counselor, is when you walk into a new situation, walk up to who's ever in charge and just say, how can I be of help? If you do that, you will become a great counselor. People will appreciate you and good things will happen. And in some respects, if I send all those counselors home with the idea, oh, I want to walk up to somebody and say, how can I be of help? I've done my job. <laughs> That's what they think. I know what to do now. Yeah, it's really special. That's terrific. One of the things that's collectively on the minds of most people worldwide these days is the pandemic that we're living in. What advice do you have for people who may be feeling a bit overwhelmed by life in the pandemic? Actually, the pandemic has been a very good time for me. I know that sounds weird, but I realized early that if you sort of visualize this thing in front of you called your life, as time went on, little pieces fell off. You couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you couldn't do this, and your life got really, 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 really small. And a lot of people thought to themselves, well, I'll wait it out, or I can live with this much life. But they didn't have enough things going on, enough things to create the good energy that needs to deal with the difficult energy that comes our way as, as human beings. So I began to realize I wanted to be very intentional. The intentionality came with finding new activities, new relationships. One of the things I do, for example, is I Zoom my friends. And as soon as I'm through one conversation, I'll say, how about if I call you back in a month? Nobody objects to a month. Two weeks, eh, they go, eh, eh, but a month, everybody will say yes to a month. And then I put it down and a month from then they're on the docket. I had probably 15 friends like that or built up to maybe 15 friends like that, 10 or 15 other thing that's nice about that is that it's like going to a restaurant you don't go to very often. When you go, you generally have the same thing because it's your favorite dish and you go two months later and you have it again. You don't really get into the menu. When you talk with people every month, you get beyond that first menu item. It's rather than how are you, how are the kids, how's this? You begin to really start talking about more important issues. That was the other thing for me was making sure that I was involving myself in situations that were nourishing. Nourishing conversation, nourishing people nourishing events. The other thing I think that was really important is to realize that the pain we feel in the pandemic is not from the pandemic. The pain that we feel from the pandemic is we lose the ability to be the people we want to be. The farther we get away from the people we want to be, 
the more pain we have in our lives. The trick is not to focus on the pandemic. The trick is to ask ourselves, if I were being the person I wanted to be in this situation with the restrictions I have, what would I do? The problem is people say, well, what do I want to do? But see, what I want to do is the person who's scared and worried and alone and you know all those things. That's not the person I want making decisions in my life. The person I want making decisions in my life is the one who's committed to courage and building and creativity. So I asked that part of me, if I were somebody who were courageous and creative and committed, what would I do next? And then do it, even though you don't feel like it. You and I would talk about it. It's really choice theory under pressure, but it really works. That's the other thing that really works is because as you do the things that the person you want to be would do, you actually become the person you want to be. I used the pandemic as an opportunity to become more the person I wanted to be. And it worked. My relationships are in better shape than I've ever been. I trust myself more. I've got the right questions, not necessarily the right answers, but I got the right questions when I get in difficult situations. And I think the right questions are even more important than the right answers. They lead to the right answers, I think, when you ask the right questions. Isn't that what your Reinventing Yourself book was about? I understand it in ways I didn't understand it before, but yeah, in the Reinventing book from many, many years ago really does get at the heart of that. I have to imagine the me I want to be and then do what he would do. Not do with the person who's worried and concerned and upset. If I do what that person does, then that's what I get it up with. So yeah, it's a way of doing it. I've gotten much clearer about it and I can explain it much more easily than say, read a whole book. (laughs) The book was great. I'll tell you that. And it's funny that you say you understand it better now than when you wrote the book. But when I read the book, that's what I took from the book. Exactly what you said today. I think you knew it then. You just didn't know you knew it. Again, these things come around over and over and over again. It's not a straight line. It's always a spiral and a circle. And I spend a lot of time working with people who are getting sober. They forget that honesty is not static. What was honest for me a week ago may not be honest for me today. What was courageous for me a month ago may not be courageous for me today. It changes all the time. If I don't build that in, for example, I see a lot of people in AA who plateau around years 16, 17, 18. They just plateau. What I think I've figured out is they're trying to rely on the level of honesty, the level of courage, the level of integrity that they had when they first started the program. But they've grown. Again, what passed for honest a month ago may not pass for honest now. And it changes. And as soon as it changes, generally my life can be more difficult. If I don't follow through on that and acknowledge that, then it will become more difficult. That's part of why asking yourselves, you know, if I were being honest today with what I know, what would I do? What would I be thinking about? It's still hard. It takes a lot of courage. I talk about three things that people need when they want to change. One is design. You have to be able to design it. You have to be able to imagine it. You have to be able to think about it. Second is skills. If you get a picture of what you want, do you have the skills to put it into practice? Do you know how to have those conversations? Do you know that kind of thinking? And the third one is always courage. I love this question. I love the look on their face when I ask it. Do you really not know what you need to do? Or do you know what you need to do, but you're afraid to do it? A significant number of people say, I know what I need to do. I'm just terrified. That's different than not knowing what you need to do. Because they're terrified, whenever they get close to thinking they know what they need to do, they get back and stir it up again and make it all fuzzy again. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. know." It's like, okay, you do know, but you're afraid. Okay. That's a different place. And then we can help them be less afraid, help them be more courageous. Can you say a little something about how you might do that with someone? It goes back to the same things we're talking about. The mythology in America right now is, I want to have the feelings without doing the work that comes to that. So in other words, I want to be honest without telling the truth. I want to feel honest without telling the truth. 
I want to feel healthy without having to exercise. I want to feel a certain way without doing what people who feel that do. And it's just mythology. If I want to be courageous, people want to feel courageous without having to take risks, without having to put themselves on the line. That's not the way it works. You can't just change that feeling. The way to change it is if I were feeling courageous, what would I do? And you, that, you, know, you can do it. It doesn't have to be in some big event. Some people go into a restaurant and saying, this hamburger is overcooked. Can I get a new one? They would never do that. It scares them to death. They just don't speak up. So for some people going to a restaurant and saying, I asked for rare and it's really well done. Can I get another hamburger? For them, that's courage. As soon as they experience themselves being courageous at Chili's, they can also experience themselves being courageous with their kids or their boss or other people. And it could be something as simple as the dress I want to wear. If I wore that dress, I really like that dress and it's really the one I want to wear today, but I'm afraid some people will think this. Or, okay, this is the safe choice. So, okay, right then you've made a choice. You're going to become a person who feels safe or you're going to feel a person who feels courageous. And a lot of times people say, I want to feel both. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. Again, go back to the same process. Can you imagine what you wear if you were feeling both courageous and sane? Either they can't imagine or they don't have something in their wardrobe or they have to choose. It's a fun question. So if you have to choose between safety and courage at this point in your life today, when all we're talking about is wearing a dress to work, which would you choose? Life is choices, choices is life. There it is right then. So what I choose to wear to work today is not necessarily about what I choose to wear to work today. One of the basic tenets of the work we do is you can't tell what somebody's doing by watching what they're doing. When somebody puts on a dress, you don't know what they're doing. What they're doing is facing their demons. What you think they're doing is just putting on a dress. That's really important to remember because it really speaks to judging people, right? You, we, we judge people without knowing their story. And we can't know their story because all we know is what we see. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know what's in that person's mind. We don't know what happened five minutes ago. I really like that reminder. Thank you for that. Yep. Could we switch this to parenting and just ask you as a parent of these two grown men in your life, when you look back on your parenting, do you feel a sense of success or failure or something in between? I would say I really feel success. Part of that is because I think my favorite quote about parenting is the, the miracle of parenting is not that adults create children, but that children create adults that I had to become somebody that I was not ready to become when I had kids. I can say that overall, I rose to the challenge. Again, doing the work we do, I realized it was about me, not about them. And that was a nice thing to understand. The pain I was having in my relationship with them was not about them, it was about me. I did a lot of work on myself. And the other thing was to have some kind of overall vision. I always imagined when my kids were young, I thought, okay, they're going to go to college. And at some point, they're going to be sitting around their college dorm room, having that conversation that every person has when they go to college with their buddies, like, well, what was your old man like? Or what's your mom like? What I ask myself is, when my son is sitting in that college dorm room, and somebody says, what's your dad like? I tried to imagine what I wanted him to say. When I can imagine what I wanted him to say, I said, okay, if that's what I wanted him to say when he's 21, what do I have to do to track back from that? What does that mean I do when he's eight? What does that mean I do when he's 11? What does it mean I do when he's 16? I tried to do that. I tried to become the kind of father that, that a son would say that about. I've been totally blessed with my kids gotten through difficult times. It's not like we didn't have a shortage of difficult times. We had our fair share. I wouldn't say we had an overwhelming amount. Many of those we didn't have because we nipped in the bud. 
the biggest thing was moving toward as quickly as possible and not trying to control my kids, to control myself, to give them information. This was a big difference between their mother and I. I'll give you an example. The report card would come home and she would have the envelope opened and making comments or whatever before the kids even sat down. Then she'd say to me, uh, well, aren't you going to talk to the kids about that? I said, just leave it there. I'll, I'll leave it there, whatever, whatever, whatever. So I'd leave it sitting on the table or the couch or wherever it was for a day or two, whatever, until all the radioactivity went away. It became just a piece of paper with letters on it or numbers on it. Then I'd say to my kids, would you like me to look at your report card? Most parents would never say to their kids, do you want me to look at it? They would assume it was absolutely there. It's their property. It's a reflection of who they are. And they'd say, sure. So I'd look at the report card and they'd say, so what do you think? And I'd say, well, I think a more important question is, what do you think? It's your report card. I already did this when I was eight, 10 years old. What do you think? Are you happy with it? You got to see in Spanish. Is that okay? Or is that not okay? It was not the conversation. How come you go only oh, got a C in Spanish? You got an A in French. What well, can't you work that hard? And it's setting the model early that coming to me as your parent is going to be a helpful experience. There are times certainly when I got mad, most of those, my kids still joke about my saying that I just want to warn you, you're getting really close, but you're getting really close. And they'd say close to what? I said, just you're getting really close. It was enough humor. Most of the time they'd back off, which was nice. And they would just realize this is not going to go well. I don't want to see dad angry. I did get angry once in a while just to show them what it looked like. We were doing it mutually. I was there to help them grow. I don't want to come off as anything close to saintly or perfect because there's moments trying to get kids off on the bus and trying to get kids to pick up their rooms and all those things. But I also worked at camp for 50 years. A young boy who didn't want to was my bread and butter. Basically, it's clean up your room. You can go outside. The room's clean. You go outside. You don't want to go outside. What if I don't ever want to clean my room? I say, you're 18. You go where you want to go. <laughs> With a smile on my face. They knew that it was the punishment. You go to your room. And how long do you stay there? Do you ready to work it out? That could be sometimes five minutes. It could be sometimes a day. Then they come downstairs and say, I'm ready to work it out. The trick at that point was to hold the lecturette. If you just did this an hour ago, or why can't you just get rid of the word why altogether, pretty much. Why can't you? Why don't you? Never helped anybody. I began to have this wonderful, trusting relationship. And I think the other thing that it really helped was I went to this headmaster, talked about a triangle. There's a triangle. And each of the three points of the triangle, one is the parent, one is the child, and one is the school. And the trick is to make sure that none of those points of the triangle fall into the middle of any of those. There's a relationship the school has with the kid that the parent should not be a part of. There's a relationship the parent and the kid, the school should not be a part of. And there's a relationship with the school and the parent that the kid's not a part of. I'll try to give you one example, and I'll, I'll be quiet here for a minute or not. A teacher would send me a note home and said, Adam is doing this, whatever, whatever. My son Adam was not always the most well-behaved person in class. So would you please come in and talk to me about that? So I would say to Adam, do you want me to talk to your teacher? What do you think his answer was? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the last thing you want me to talk to his teacher. So I said, okay. And this was a way to keep those lines, that triangle clear. All right. I'm going to write your teacher a note. That's the line between me and the school. I'm going to tell her that in the next two or three days, you're going to come to her and you're going to try and work out the problem. At the end of the week, I'll write her again and I'll say, is she happy with the way the problem got worked out? If she is, I won't have to come in. I never had to go in, not once. It was really cool. Teachers began to appreciate. I say, how did it go? Did you and Adam work it out? I said, yeah. He came to me. He said, whatever, whatever. We worked it out. It was fine. Parenting with the common sense stuff we've been given doesn't often help us very much. That We're supposed to be in charge. We're supposed to tell them what to do. 
that's important. And those are obviously alternatives, but to give them as much power as they can along the way without being stupid and giving them too much power, because that's also doesn't help either. You don't ask a two-year-old kid to walk across the floor with a face that your word's going to break. That's foolish. That sounds like great parenting. I know not perfect parenting. I don't believe in such a thing, but really great parenting. I like the idea of the separation between church and state or school and parenting. That really is a great distinction to make. And I think that there's something that's overriding thing also, which has been really helpful to me in my life, is the realization that every problem has a solution, but more importantly, every solution has a problem. So if I parent one way, there's a certain set of problems. If I parent another way, there's another set of problems. If I parent another way, there's another set of problems. So there's no one way to do it that has no problems. It's just choosing the problems. So the question I have to ask is, which set of problems do I respect myself for having? And I would respect myself for having the problems that come from knowing the truth, even when I didn't know what to do about it. Or even when they said, well, I'm going to go to a party that has drinking. What do you do? Do you say no? Do you say yes? Do you give them the opportunity? They could have gone to the party and not said anything, but they came to you and said voluntarily, I know, Dad, there's probably going to be drinking there. And so then I have a choice about the kind of parent I want to be. He told me that. I appreciate that. And sometimes the answer is probably yes, and sometimes the answer is probably no. And saying no is what puts them in a box about telling the truth. If I tell you the truth, will I be able to do what I want to do? That's what kids learn is if I tell my parents the truth, they won't let me do what I want to do. So now they're in a bind between doing what they want to do and not doing what they want to do. There are so many ways they can hide it these days. It used to be you had to do something to change how you felt, sneak out, go to a dance, whatever, whatever. Now all you have to do is reach into your pocket and put a substance into your body and you can feel the way you hoped you would feel. So it's tricky. It's a lot more up for grabs. It's true. There is. It's different challenges than we had when we were young. That's for sure. Yep. So Barnes, you're into your eighth decade. What decade was your best so far? I think my 50s. People worry about their 50s. My 50s were fabulous. I finally knew what the heck I was talking about professionally. All those things I wished I'd known when I was 30, I actually didn't know when I was 50. I had energy and time and medical issues were not a big deal. I had a little money that I could spend on my family and my friends, myself. They were fun. It was probably the best decade overall. But is this decade important? This decade is incredibly important. My 70s are incredibly important. because It's just a whole bunch of different issues. It's how do I want to make the transition from being a spiritual human in terms of being spiritual? How do I want to handle myself aging? What do I want to do with the restrictions to activity or those kind of things? How can I stay grateful? That's a huge one. Noticing what's wrong in life is what the brain does naturally. So you never have to teach anybody how to complain. You know, nobody yes. ever wants you know, I don't know how to complain very well. Would you help me learn how to complain? <laughs> it's pretty natural. But being grateful is not natural. It's really a skill that has to be taught. If I'm going to stay strong, then I got to learn to be grateful, even in difficult situations. When I think about who I want to be for my kids, the legacy I want to be, my parents, my mother, for example, did not teach me a whole lot of stuff about how to live the life I want to live. But she taught me a huge amount about how to die. She really died beautifully. That's a gift. It's a real gift. And I thank her for that. Our kids are still watching us. What does it mean to get older? What does it mean to be an adult? What does it mean to be they're watching us in some respects more than they did when they were little kids? When you get in the business of camping or school or those kind of situations, I have a lot of kids, and especially young adults, counselors, who counted on me to be the person I said I was. Because all around them and all around so many of us are people who pretend to be something and turn out to be something else. 
One of the goals of my life around people that I serve, especially kids and counselors, is to continue to be the person I say I am and not to go away. You can bump up against me and I'm still going to tell you the truth. You can bump up against me. I'm still going to be me because I don't think they have that many people that they can trust to do that. And it's more like a gift. My 70s feel more like a gift I can give the world. The 50s felt more like a decade of accomplishment and success. This is a different feeling. My 50s were like that for me too. What I love about your 70s is the thing you talked about earlier, being of service. You're still of service. You still serve people. And even that beautiful intentionality you talked about for your 75th birthday and also collecting the people that you want to talk to monthly and making sure they're nourishing people and spending time with them. While you may have started to do that for yourself, you are really creating wonderful opportunities for them as well to be connected with you. I can say that for sure, because I am fortunate enough to be one of those 15 people. And I really appreciate and love our conversations. So you're not just doing it for yourself, but you're actually serving those that you are connecting with. I love that you're still involved in service. There's other things that I know you do as well. And I'm 61 this year, and many of my high school friends are busy planning their retirements. I know because at our last class reunion, everybody was talking about retiring, but I have no intention of retiring. And it's so good for my soul to run into other people who are still working, not because they have to, but because they love what they do. Are you happy with the way you're living in your 70s? It's funny. I said to a friend the other day, I said I was proud of myself. And he said, well, you should, if you're really living a spiritual life, when you say you're proud, you should substitute, I'm grateful. I thought about it. I thought, mm, I think it's both. I'm grateful for the opportunity the universe gave me, but I'm proud of the fact that I acted on it. I have kind of a mantra in my own life, which has worked pretty well for me, which is show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and release the outcome. I'm able to do that most of the time. A very, very high level of performance here. Again, happy is a result of love and service. If I can do that, I feel proud of myself. I feel like I'm being the person I want to be. And if I'm being the person I want to be, I'm happy. Showing up is huge, especially when you get to be older. And then pay attention, tell the truth, and release the outcome. Releasing the outcome is a big one. That's knowing that something bigger than you has whatever's in store is in store. And you just have to be grateful for it. And on the other side of that, I just admit that I'm powerless over certain things. And I think the major issue of parenting and teaching is powerlessness, that we have to realize we can't affect certain outcomes that we wish we could. We keep trying to control the people we think should create those outcomes. Our friend, very good, used to talk with teachers and she say, at this point in your life, who do you realize you control and not control? And several teachers say, well, I know I, the only person I can really control is myself. And then she would ask them, what percentage of the time in your life as a classroom teacher do you spend trying to control other people? And they said, like, 95%. It's like, okay, so you think there might be any conflict there? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit. People don't teach us how to manage or how to teach or how to parent without being controlling. Those are absolutely skills and ways of thinking about things. And it doesn't mean you don't ever control or you don't ever say no or you don't ever say, no, you can't do that. In terms of one of the major parenting skills, the old things, the best way to say yes is to say no. When kids say, can I go over to Anthony's house? And you think, oh, God, if I say yes, they're going to come back late. Dinner's not going to be good on time. They're going to be dirty from playing in that silly sand pile with Anthony's. And I'm going to have to clean up all those clothes. And so we say no. What happens is I've got power. So they take all their energy and try to change my no to a yes. Whining, moaning, screaming, crying, begging, pleading, rationality, all sorts of things. 
what I learn is, and this is one of the skills you learn as a parent, is, okay, try and say yes and. The answer is, okay, well, if you want to go over to Anthony's house, we have to figure out a way where you're back by six, all your dirty clothes are in the, in the washing machine, and I don't have to pick up sand from the front door down to your bedroom. When you figure that out, then you can go. Okay, no, that's not what I call figuring it out. <laughs> what are you going to do? What they do is they begin to focus on the problem, not on my answer, because I've already said yes. I've already said yeah, sure, you can go. Sometimes they come back and say, I don't know how to do that. So I don't know how to do it either. Until we do, we cannot go in Anthony's house. They just get used to it. One other specific time, my son said, I ride on the back of Philip's motorcycle. And I said, Adam, this is one of those times when the answer is no. I don't think he's a great driver. And you only get to die once, and I'm not going to have it be on the back of Phyllis' motorcycle. And if you want to be mad at me, feel free. This is one of those times the answer is no. And he said to me, what if I just decide to do it anyway? It was a life-changing decision at that moment. I said, well, then that'll be the relationship we have at that point. And you'll have to decide if that's what you want. I've given you my answer. We can find some other things for you and fill to do. But riding in the back of the motorcycle right now is not one of them. I could have said, if I catch you running on that motorcycle, I'm going to grind your ass for the next 30 years, or you're going to lose your phone, or this or that, or whatever. But that didn't put the energy where I wanted it. If I tell you no, and you go against me, then that's the kind of relationship you're going to have with your dad. Is that what you want? You can't use that six times a day, but you can use it once every couple of months. It has a lot of power. As far as I know, he never went on the back of the motorcycle. I just want to go back to something you said, because I think it would be a great way to end this podcast. You talked about parenting without control requires skill. And it made me think of the three things you said. You need to be able to design it. You need to have the skills to carry it out. And you need to have the courage. And I think it takes all three of those things to be able to parent without control. That's what you help parents do. So if somebody listening to this podcast wanted to get in touch with you and maybe have you help them with some parenting challenges they might be having, how would they do that? Best way is either just barnes.boffy at gmail.com or a website is barnesboffy.com. I'll put those things in the show notes for people. And is there any last words you want to say to our audience? Just you have what you need inside you all the stuff we need. It's not a matter of getting more stuff. It's a matter of being more stuff, being more loving, being more powerful, being more free, and just ask for help because there's a lot of good help out there for people who have better ideas than I did when I was a young parent, and they helped me. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and please remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Mary Allen, a master certified coach who helps people achieve inner peace. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.